Well, we are um, trying to, um, I think, well, I think it was been a few weeks ago when we, we talked about some of these things on spiritual inheritance here. Um, I get it come up there, Kim. Maybe you can pop it up for me. But we've been, yeah, there it is. Inheritance, this is part four. And I'd like to read to you a section of scripture. We're going to be talking next couple of weeks about the particular things. And uh, we're going to finish out this series with this. Uh, the particularities of what heaven is like. What the, what the Bible reveals to us that heaven is. And I think it's one of these things where the longer you've been a Christian, the more you study the Word of God, the more heaven becomes, how you say, you know it's going to happen, but uh, it's, a, it's a, kind of a secret. Uh, God has kind of kept it a secret. He tells us that we're going to be there, but exactly what it's going to be like, it's, uh, uh, well, let me put it this way. We, we tend to know more how awful hell is than how glorious heaven's going to be. Jesus, he was pretty clear about how awful hell is, and he gave us some pretty clear descriptions of it, about the torment that's going to be there from rejecting God and being separated from God, what that alternative is there. But when it comes to heaven, there's, uh, we have to put on some different thinkers if we can. Uh, I used to think as a kid that heaven was on top of the clouds. I remember, I remember lying down at the back of the station wagon one Saturday afternoon. I don't know how old I was, was probably six or seven. I was, it was a beautiful Saturday, and I was lying down on the tailgate of our station wagon just looking up at the beautiful blue sky, and there was white fluffy clouds going by. And I thought, how can heaven be on top of there? Because I can see. I can see because my little mind just thought that heaven was on top of the clouds. That's where we went. And uh, I learned pretty quick that, you know, no, that's not right. Um, but... Uh, our concept of heaven is, uh, well, the Bible, the Bible will stretch our understanding of it. That I think it's, we can relate to it by, by it being a place, but it's more than that. It's more than a place. It's a combination of a place and a relationship. And that's where sometimes we have to expand our understanding. Well, let's just look into it, okay? And Re Revelation chapter 21, verses, uh, I got, I just kind of, I didn't want to read the whole chapter to you because it's quite kind of long, but I, I want to read to you various sections of scripture that we can touch on today. John the apostle said, then I saw a new heaven, and he's talking about the sky. He's not talking about actually heaven itself, but he's talking about, uh, he's talking about the sky and a new earth because this old earth has been destroyed. Christ has returned and the old earth has been destroyed and now God has made a new atmosphere and he's made a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea on this new earth. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And where have you heard that before? You know, all through the New Testament, we as God's people are called the bride of Christ. We're the church. We are his radiant bride. And so now John is seeing something, us, the church, coming down out of heaven. Look, says, I heard a loud voice from heaven say, look, God's dwelling is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. That is amazing thought because that is not a reality for us now. 
and it hasn't been a reality since the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned and God's and and God uh, br- there was a break of the fellowship there but this is a this is like Eden restored here where God's dwelling will once again be with us where we will see him face to face boy it's going to be quite quite a bit then we go on to verse 9 9b to 14 now come I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, possibly a diamond here, clear as crystal. It had great high walls with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates and on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And there were three gates on the east and three on the north and three on the south and three on the west and the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the lamb verses 21 and 23 says the 12 gates were 12 pearls each gave a gate made a single pearl it was made of a single pearl the great street of the city was of gold as pure as transparent glass and I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple and the city does not need the sun or moon or you know to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp well you see it's not so easy just to think we have, to, we have to really have a spiritual understanding, a spiritual mind to be able to grasp exactly how, what a rich treasure John is trying to describe to us. Lord, we pray that as we look, Lord, at our spiritual inheritance today, that Lord, even though it's really quite beyond our comprehension, and Lord, isn't that so that with a lot of things you have given us, we don't understand them until they actually happen. Lord, but we pray today that you'll help us to, to maybe wrap our minds around this a little bit and realize that <laughs> the inheritance you've give given us is rich indeed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think it was in the 1880s, a Baptist minister by the name of E.W. Kenyon, and that's the first, I, first time I became familiar with this fellow was back in 1982 uh, when I was pastoring uh, in Texas, and uh, he was a kind of a popular name down there. This, he was a, actually a Baptist minister back in the 1880s, but he went astray. He went off track and got and developed uh, a, a heresy theology uh, and it became known today as the prosperity gospel. It's actually, uh, if you study prosperity gospel, prosperity theology, there's not much gospel actually in it these days and it mainly, <laughs> it mainly makes prosperity preachers uh, the only ones who are getting rich off of it. But, but um, I hope that doesn't stop you from listening, you know, if, if you've had experience with, with prosperity gospel, and I've, I've studied it quite extensively with, uh, because I was stationed in, in Texas and had to deal with that kind of heresy a lot. I um, hope, you'll, hope you'll study it and realize that there's a lot of, lot of ungodliness in it. The prosperity gospel is a heresy, although that's true. The Bible does reveal to us something about Jesus, is that, that he became poor that he might make us rich. There is a prosperity in the gospel that Jesus became poor 
that he might make us rich. Matter of fact, it's in Second Corinthians here. I'll let Kim, you have, you, our, my gizmo's broken. Maybe I don't have a set right, Kim. But uh, Paul says here in Second Corinthians, that you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. Yeah. He wants, God wants to, through Jesus' ministry, make us rich. Now, it's not the way the prosperity people preach it. That's where they get all screwed up because uh, all of a sudden it's more about material wealth than it is even about growing spiritually and about salvation and about the gospel of Jesus. But uh, this is a really a tremendous re- revelation Paul gives us here. It reveals to us that, that Jesus definitely existed before Mary was visited by the angel Gabriel in Nazareth and also before that night in Bethlehem, that Jesus was rich before he was born. <laughs> Jesus was rich, uh, you know, be, before, he, before the earth was created. Um, be, as the, you know, before creation, Jesus existed as God the Son and all the splendor of heaven and was surrounded by all the glory, by all the majesty uh, of, of God's of God's power and and presence. And as the second member of the Trinity, it says here that God the Son had need of nothing, of course, but when he put on human flesh, when he put on human flesh, when he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary, and he began uh, growing human cells that first of all made him a zygote, and then he became an embryo, and then he became a fetus, and then a newborn, It was at that very moment, upon the conception of Mary by the Holy Spirit, that Jesus became poor. That he set aside his glory that he had through all eternity for the purpose of loving us, for the purpose of making us rich. He became poor for our sakes. Now, this is, he didn't set aside his deity. He didn't set that aside. But he did set aside his glory. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 to 8 says that Christ, he actually emptied himself. It's a unique way of saying it. He emptied himself. He became nothing in a sense is another way that has been put. But he emptied himself and he did that basically in three different ways. And I have that up here on the screen for you. That first of all, that Christ emptied himself. He accepted the, li- the limitations of having a human body. Here you got the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God having to localize himself in a human body. So that's one way that he emptied himself. He limited himself to a human body so he could no longer be, you know, omnipresent. He couldn't be everywhere all the time. Also, we know he wasn't omniscient in the sense that independently he, he, uh, he said, I, without the Father I can do nothing. And he didn't know all things. He didn't know when he was going to be returning. He told us that very plainly. But his, also his glory was hidden from people. People, when they saw Jesus, they just saw another human being. They just saw hey, this, guy, this guy with, you know, with the, the two eyes and face and hair, you know, just a normal human being with, you know, arms and legs and hands. But he gave up also that independent use of his relative attributes, like I said before. But he never relinquished his goodness, his holiness, and his truth, and his love. And he lived humbly. He relied upon the Father for everything and was guided by the Holy Spirit all the time. And so he lived as a servant 
to God and to other people. And so he who was rich became poor for our sakes. And the cross and the empty tomb were the final things that he did in order that we might be rich. Okay, are you following that? Jesus did die. He did live uh, and minister so that we might be rich. Philippians chapter 2, I think it's the next, next slide, Kim. Chapter 2 says, Who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing or he emptied himself by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So how did he make us rich? Well, certainly he, he gives us enough to supply what we need here in this world, but even more so, he makes us rich with this spiritual inheritance we've been talking about that will never spoil, Peter tells us, chapter 1 there from First Peter, never rot, he'll never fade away, and it's put on reserve for us, waiting for us, in heaven. So because of Jesus' poverty, loved ones, he emptied himself to the point of even dying on the cross that we become quite wealthy. I'd like to just briefly review for you, and I'll do this real, real briefly, of the contents of what our spiritual inheritance is, just to bring back some, just to jog your memory a little bit, that what we've talked about so far, that, that the, the first blessing of our inheritance is uh, this, and it's really a big deal, um, you and I were lost. Think about it. We were chained by the power of sin, hopelessly destined to be separated from God and forever the children of the devil. And when you believed on the name of the Son of God as your Savior, the Bible says the Spirit of Jesus through the blood of Jesus tore you away from Satan's grasp and rescued you. And not just did that, but he made you his child. Made you his child. Uh, even those who believed on his name, he made us to be his children. Amen? Wow. And that means, loved ones, a full spiritual legal claim and power to belong to him as his child. And he is our heavenly father. He adopted you into his family and gave you all the privileges of your spiritual inheritance. That's pretty cool. He gave you the right to be his child. You're not a second-class citizen. You're not a second-class family member. But you're one with the Father, one with the Son, one with the Spirit, and all, who are, and all who belong to God are your brothers and your sisters in Jesus. And on that great day, when we stand before the Lord, that great, on the, before the judgment seat of our Creator, and He evaluates us, Matthew 25 says this, And the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance. <laughs> Come who you are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes, you clothed me. I was, when I was sick, you looked after me. And when I was in prison, you came to visit me. <laughs> What's Jesus saying there? He's saying that to prove that you are my, my child, your life showed evidence that you were concerned about the things that I was concerned about. You served me. You served me. I like what Stuart Briscoe said. I think I heard him say it a long time ago. One of my favorite preachers. Stuart Briscoe said, you know, on that great day, a lot of times people get all of them. We, we get afraid about it. And there is a sense where we, we should be serious about it. But you know what it is really? 
the great judgment day for us as Christians who are following Jesus, it, we shouldn't uh, stand in fear of it, but rather realize, oh goody, it's time to show what we've been doing. Really. Oh goody. Finally, we're, finally it's kind of like, you know, the test is over, put down your pencils class, bring your test forward, it's time to evaluate, you know. How much did you study? How, how, how well did you do? And really that's what the Lord's going to do. He's going to evaluate our lives and say, hey, um, did you live for me? Let me see. Let, let's examine your life and see where you live for me. You know, oh yes, right there. You remember when you, you testified for me right there in the grocery store or the time when you sacrificed for your child, you know, when they were sick and you, you stayed up all night and took care of them. And, you know, all these zillions of things, zillions of things where the Lord is going to basically say this. <laughs> Thank you. Come on home. Wow. Dear, I thank you from God. Won't that be something? Man, to hear a thank you from God. Thank you from the Savior. Thank you for serving me in all the ways that no one saw a lot of times. I just saw it. You know, you took care of me. And uh, you, you, you lived... For my glory. So in that, that's, um, that's what Jesus is saying. That's, that's, that's how wonderful it is to this, this privilege of belonging to God, to being a child of God. This, the second blessing of our inheritance is eternal life. Ephesians 2, 1 to 5 says that we were dead in our transgressions and sins in, in which we used to live and follow the ways of the world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of the flesh, following his desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by, by, by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. We looked at that, didn't we? That... We won't have eternal life someday, loved ones. If you love the Lord Jesus today, you have it now. Your soul has been transformed. Eternal life has changed your spirit from darkness to light, from death to life. Yeah, you have eternal life now. Your body doesn't have it. <laughs> this old shell that we have here, but the, 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 that houses our eternal soul, but our eternal souls have been transformed. We have eternal life now. Isn't that cool? And the third blessing brings us to the third blessing of our inheritance. And of course, we, when we die, the Bible informs us that our spirits go to be with the Lord. Because we have eternal life, we go to be with the Lord. But our earthly body, our earthly decaying body, does not possess that eternal life. And so we're gonna, it's going to sleep in death. The Bible always talks about the body sleeping in death. The soul doesn't sleep. The soul's awake alive and goes to be with the Lord. But the body, the Bible talks about the body is asleep in death. And we put it to rest. We put it in the ground. And we, and it's waiting. It's waiting. It's waiting to be awakened. Waiting for that great day when the Savior returns. The only one who has a glorious body. The only one right now has a glorious body. He's the only one who has raised, been raised from the dead. And that great day when he comes again, he, we will rise to meet him. And instantaneously those old born out bodies will be transformed into a glorious body. And uh, again, what it will look like, we don't, it will, it, 
John says we don't know what it's going to be like but we know that when we see him we'll, we'll, we'll know then because we will be just like Jesus uh, and the Bible tells us I don't, you know, we don't know if we'll look young or old or, or what color of hair we're going to have or we'll be bald some of us we don't know uh, but we know this one thing that the body will never perish, Peter tells us, and it's never going to be defiled again. We'll not be able to sin. Sin will not be, a, be no temptation. There'll be no problems that way. It's never going to fade away. We're never going to wear out. You know, our clothes will always be eternal, whatever our clothing is. Everything about us will be eternal. It'll be a body with no weaknesses. Our minds will be, un, will be uh, clear. There'll be no fogginess in our thinking. Our thinking will be perfected. And our emotions, we won't be all over the, all over the chart. You know, when it, when it comes to, you know, our feelings are up, down, all around. And it, well, sometimes we deal with pains of anxiety. All those things will be passed. Because we'll be perfected with a glorious body. Amen. We have ceased from our labors. And we are beyond the ability to ever sin again. Well, and this is all reserved for us, waiting for us in heaven, Peter says. Now, there's something else here for us. In heaven, there's something else waiting for us in heaven, and this is where we want to focus there a special, unique, eternal abiding place. It's a special, unique, eternal abiding place. Uh, there has been many folks who have claimed to have seen heaven in a near death experience. Can I challenge you to maybe with some new thoughts regarding those things? Because those are all kinds of books out there, and um even written by some people that we would say maybe uh, think along the same lines or at least in the same denomination as we are or the same type of church experience that we, we've had. I have to admit that as a, in my younger years, I was really eager to, uh, to soak up every book, every testimony of anyone who claimed to have seen God on the other side. As a young Christian, I, I, I remember that I really don't again wish to pop anybody's bubble today, but I, I gradually began to question these books because these people had these near-death experiences because they so often frequently, they so frequently, I should say, contradicted the Bible. That always bothered me. Now, wait a minute. You said you saw this and this, and, and um, I'm talking about Christian people. You saw this and this. Well, that's not what the Scripture says about that. You know, that, that bothers me. And often people who were atheists and even un unbelievers were told that they got to a certain point and God said, hey, it's not your time yet to come. Go, go back. And I mean, I hear that a lot of time in these stories where it's not your time yet. And it's almost like God's always making mistakes calling people <laughs> you know, home before it's time. I thought, that doesn't make sense either, you know. Um, and oftentimes un unbelievers are are not afraid of God. They just look at him and they say, what a wonderful person, instead of feeling the wrath of God about their sinfulness and their hatred toward him. That should be a bother to us. That, that's, that's deception. That's, a, that's, a, that's, that's deception. That's deceptive experience, whatever's happened. And now a lot of times these things just might be drugs and things that people are on. But it's, it began to look as if God, again, sure makes a lot of preemptive mistakes, but getting folks to the gates of heaven only to tell them that it wasn't their time. But plus there's all kinds of experiences, these near-death experiences without, that were just um, not, well, not experienced, but just by, uh, by people in our culture or people in Christianity. But actually Muslims have the same thing. People, Hindus, have the same experiences. 
people in other cultures who don't even know God, don't even know the name Jesus, or hasn't, don't know much about Jesus, have the same experiences. So that's, this seems odd, doesn't it? Um, I began to doubt these testimonies because besides many people who have had these experiences, I don't know what it is, but they always have to write a book and then go on a speaking tour. Just being honest. They always have to write a book and then go on a speaking tour of some type. And this is where I started to really doubt these kind of things because the scriptures teach us that it's appointed a man wants to die and then face the evaluation of God. Hebrews chapter, chapter 9 verse 27. And not to die and come back all the time. Um, plus, there is no record in Scripture of anyone dying and going to heaven only to be told to return to the earth. The prophets had visions of God in His majesty, but even the Apostle Paul, who doesn't know if he was actually in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he doesn't know if he was in heaven or not. He said, I don't know if I was in body or not. I'm not sure, but all I know is I was in heaven and I heard things that I wasn't allowed to talk about. And that's why I'm not talking about them or writing them down. And all everyone seems to want to write a book about what they saw and, and go on speaking tours about it. And Paul was really hesitant to even talk about it. And he said, I can't tell you what I heard. I'm not allowed to talk about it. I think it's interesting. Um, Daniel, the prophets Daniel, Isaiah, John, they, they fell down as dead people when they even saw an angel let alone the face of him who lives forever and ever. Uh, we know for certain that Lazarus was in Hades, or at least the, the, uh, the heavenly part of Hades, for four days. But there's not one record of, of Lazarus ever describing what he experienced. Hmm. The point I'm trying to make is that we shouldn't be so quick to swallow uh, every testimony that claims they have seen heaven in some sort of near-death experience, far better it would be to put your confidence in what the Bible says about heaven. And nowhere in Scripture are we told that what heaven's going to be like. Again, Jesus describes the flames of hell and the torments and the thirst of the rich man there in Luke chapter 16. He describes what hell is like. But he doesn't describe what, what, the, uh, what Lazarus, what, not the same Lazarus that Mary Martha, uh, Lazarus, but this other Lazarus was experiencing in the heavenly part of Hades. He doesn't really explain that. Doesn't give any details about that. Revelation chapter 21, verses 4 to 5 said, he said, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, for God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eye and there will be no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain for the old things are passed away. So we're told what isn't there. <laughs> we're told what isn't there. But we're not told what is there. There'll be no longer, well, there's not going to be any sea there. So no may see, we read that on the, on the new earth. No, there's not going to be any sun, not going to be a moon. Um... For God will be our light because he's going to be dwelling with us in a diff different way. He's going to be dwelling with us and God will be, be our light. And um, as well as the lamb, the lamb will be, will be our lamp. And also there's not going to be a church building. It's not going to be a temple. Uh, God, God is our temple. 
The Lamb is our, God and the Lamb are our temple, God, God, God Almighty. John said that he saw a new heaven in the sky, and a new earth, for the first heaven and the earth had been destroyed. And then he said, I saw the holy city, holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. You might say, Petey, there, there it is. That is heaven. It's the new Jerusalem. It's the holy city. But I hope you see as you study that section of scripture that that's not what John's describing. He's not describing heaven. He's describing us. It's beautiful. He's describing the church. He's talking about all God's people, Old Testament and New Testament, people who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the, the redeemed, the ones who were in darkness are now in light, the ones who have been saved by grace, who have been, their lives were so polluted by sin, and now the love of God and the grace of God has transformed them and changed them, and now here they are, the radiant bride of Christ coming down the the new Jerusalem. Kind of like, like the, the, the city of all of us collectively together. The city where God dwells and we're his people and he's our God. And that's us. Beautiful, isn't it? Um, he said, it's, it's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. To those Listen to this, to those who are victorious will inherit all of this. And I will be, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, and the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all the liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. And this is the second death. Revelation 21, verses 9 to 21, which we read, and John sees this new Jerusalem coming. All kinds of beautiful details are given about what it looks like. But again, it's not a description of heaven. Really, it's a description of us. The beauty of God's grace, his salvation working in our lives. All of us together can will be like this city where God dwells. Because Christianity, loved ones, isn't just an individual experience. Christianity is individual as well as a corporate experience. I remember one time when I wanted to... Uh, I was, my first two or three years of ministry, I was so uh, disillusioned with ministry, disillusioned by it, that I wanted to quit. <laughs> I just, I was really at my ropes, in, in, in my rope. I just wanted to quit. I wanted to be done. I, wasn't, I, didn't want, I still wanted to serve Jesus, but I, I wanted to be done. And the Lord spoke so very clearly to me that it's been the rock that's one of the, one of the foundation stones that's held me tight that he said, David, and it was that clear, he said, David, if you give up my church, I have nothing to give you. I have nothing to tell you. I have nothing. There's nothing for you to do. I don't have a plan B. My church is plan A. And if you give up the church, you're, you're cutting off the limb that you're sitting on because you're part of it. You're part of my family. What I want you to do is learn how to love my family and help them. Hmm. A little slap on a wrist, you know, for me. 
Yeah, I thought, oh. Because God's family, it's about his family. He's trying to rescue people from sin so that he can become part of his family. It's all about his family. And when we are, we're saved as individuals, but we're saved to be part of the family, the church. And that's why every individual who loves the Lord needs to be a part of a family, a local church. They need to be, contribute their gifts, their graces, their faith to a local expression of Jesus. That's why, because it's all about God's, God's family. Amen? All of us together here. Um, it's interesting. It says that uh, um, in verse 11, we shall shine with the glory of God like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Again, jasper could be a, a, a diamond stone. This is how God's throne was described actually in, in chapter 4 of the book of, book of Re Re Revelation. It was like a, a jasper stone. Therefore, what's he saying? He says, we're going to look like Jesus. We're going to shine with the same type of glory. Not that we're going to be, we're not divine, but we're going to have the reflection of our master. We're going to shine like Jesus shines. And it's going to be something. It's going to be something. And surrounding our lives are going to be the Again, the revelation of the, the coming of God's salvation to our lives, that the way it came, that there's 12 gates. It's, again, it's described, we're described as having 12 gates, three on each side, uh, you know, north, south, east, and west. And that's reflective of the Old Testament, how God set up the camp of Israel. He set them up in a, in a, in a square like that, you know, to, that they might reflect uh, the glory of God on all, on all sides. And the Holy of Holies is built that way also in this beautiful, this beautiful geometrical shape. It's reflected of God's abiding presence in the Holy of Holies. And here, this thing that John saw, us, we were coming down and we were perfect. <laughs> we were a geometrical shape. We were, I mean, if you want to put figures to it, we were like 15... 100 miles high and wide and deep and tall and wide and all that. We looked, we were perfect. That's what John was seeing. That God had made us perfect in all of our lives. And he did it through the Old Testament, through the ministry he brought from the Old Testament. Because the 12 gates, you know, there was, the, there was the, the name of each tribe of Israel above those gates. And then there we were resting on the 12 foundations of the apostles. So the Old Testament and the New Testament is what has made our lives full, complete in the Creator. The beauty of the, of the four square city that describes our lives is nothing but, but how beautiful the grace of God has changed us. And, the, you know, the pearl gates, as we close here, the, the, um, the, the, the pearly gates, the gates are made out of one pearl, and pearl is symbolic of, of uh, being a, um, an, an overcomer. That uh, the pearl of great price, Jesus talked about, how that, that uh, you sacrifice everything to get this wonderful, valuable pearl. And that's what it is in our life with Jesus, that we, we sacrifice everything to get the great pearl called Jesus in our lives. Our lives are not crooked. They're not jagged in sin, but beautifully straight and square, exactly like, uh, again, the geometrical shape of the Holy of Holies or where, the, where God had placed his presence. The streets of gold describe the purity of how we conduct our lives in the Lord. You see what I mean? It's hard to describe heaven because 
God is trying to describe here for us his, how his grace has changed us. And uh, there'll be nothing unholy there within that city, within our, within our, our presence, the presence of the church. Let me just close with a, a verse that Paul gives us in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 to 19. Look at what he says here. It's really, he says it so beautifully. He says, I, I pray from his glorious and limited resources that he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great really to understand fully. Then you will be made complete in all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. I think it's interesting the Apostle Paul describes the love of God as being that way, high and wide and tall, and you know, and that's just exactly how John sees us coming down out of the sky. It's beautiful, isn't it? What a day it's going to be when we will be uh, just displays, uh, really trophies, statues of God's grace will be on display. God will, as we those gold streets are straight and transparent. Our lives will be clear and transparent and holy that there'll be no wicked thing in us. That's really what John's describing. The grace of God in our lives, the redeemed there. Wouldn't it be something? He's working on us now. And that day will be perfected. And he'll display us and say, this, this, is, this is David Cox. Well, you should have seen him before. <laughs> This is what my grace has done in his life. This is Becky, you know. You know, he'll, he'll, he'll pick you up and he'll say, this, this, this is my child. This is what my grace has done. And, and they cooperated with me also. And they, they love me, you know. Well, Father, today we, we thank you once again for um, the beauty of the scriptures, how it makes us uh, understand how things really are. It reveals to us, Lord, our spiritual inheritance, the blessings of it. Thank you that Jesus paid such a great price in making us rich. So we thank you that we are your children by faith in you, through our faith in Jesus. We thank you that we have eternal life with the promise of a glorious body. And that someday we have this this wonderful promise on reserve for us that we'll be a magnificent bride uh, one in heart with Jesus and with the Almighty, with Almighty God. Pray that we, Lord, will just take courage in that and that we will, it'll be something that will spur us on to keep on keeping on and also that we'll just praise your name for what a glorious future we really have. Lord, this world is going to end in tragedy. There's no way for us to save it. It's, uh, your word already tells us that. But what a future we have beyond it. So we give you praise in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,
Amen. Amen. Lord bless you. Let's stand up. Hope that you were encouraged today and hope that, uh, that there was something there that stretched your mind and, and thinking. And go home and read the scriptures. Go home and read Revelation 21 and you'll, you'll, you'll be blessed by it.